0: Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Chloe Smith, Minister of State for the Constitution and Devolution. So, some very topical conversations to be had, including about the new elections bill that Chloe is guiding through Parliament. Before I come on to that, uh, don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, particularly with any stories where you've had an embarrassing encounter with a politician or if you've seen them in an unusual place, or indeed... An email like the one that Bryn has sent me he says I'm a student studying A-level politics excellent Bryn good luck with all that Um, I'm sure you're doing very well he says in your episode with Keir Starmer I thought I'd write to let you know that Keir Starmer is not the only politician with a cardboard cutout in my politics classroom at college we have a Tony Blair cutout brackets pre-Iraq voter (laughs) oh boy um so okay I, I think everyone understands what you mean by that Bryn uh, standing in the corner observing every lesson in a rather ominous fashion Bryn I'd love to see a picture of this actually he says we also had a Nick Clegg one but it was taken down after it got on the wrong side of a presumably disgruntled Lib Dem student and a pair of scissors Bryn I wouldn't narrow that to just the potential for it to be a Lib Dem um <laughs> student poor old Nick Clegg So you can get a Tony Blair one and you can get a Nick Clegg one as well as Keir Starmer. I mean, it feels like if there is a huge marketplace for these things, you as an audience would be the primary target. So, um, I mean, I just bought that Keir Starmer one on Amazon. (laughs) They're available through a few websites. Bryn, send us a couple of pictures. If you have, any of you, a life-size cardboard cutout of any politician, let me know, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. As always, of course, you can leave a review for the podcast. It just helps other people find it. And it's just a small way for you to acknowledge that you've enjoyed it. If you haven't, perhaps don't leave a review. That would be a nice lesson. Um, there was a couple of people who've got Alan Partridge quotes into which is very topical because, obviously, Chloe grew up in Norfolk. We do talk about um, Partridge very briefly. Um, Someone has left a review that says Jurassic Park um, and then says very nice things. I don't think there's a Partridge reference in the rest of the in the reviews that would feel bad to leave it out. But um, she did leave five stars. So well done. Um, It was left by uh, Miss Proud. (laughs) So thank you very much for that. And thank you for the Partridge reference. But the message is, of course, just leave a review. Um, But only if it's nice. (laughs) Otherwise, just hold your counsel. Uh, but yes, today's guest is Chloe Smith, Minister of States for the Constitution and Devolution, and the new elections bill, which I'm sure is of uh, interest to you and not just to me. Has a number of things in it, uh, a number of things that may uh, divide opinion, a number of things that you may feel differently about uh, having heard this. We don't just talk about that; we do talk about um, her recent recovery from breast cancer, what got her into politics, um her experience of being interviewed by Jeremy Paxman. And whether it's true about the reason David Cameron um, gave her a job in the Treasury. But a lot of this is on the elections bill. And it's brilliant because these are the sorts of things. (laughs) Obviously, I think about politics a lot. But as you may remember, during uh, the local election campaign, I was slightly surprised that we weren't talking about postal voting. more. So I am interested in the rules around voting and um, why they exist and why some are promoted and why others aren't and all that sort of thing voter id i think it's fair to say is the most controversial part of this bill um so i began by asking chloe um whether people were right to be so concerned
1: what we're introducing in the elections bill is something entirely reasonable and proportionate and actually it's something that people do in everyday life already, from picking up a parcel to getting out a library book to applying for benefits. It's a very normal thing to do, actually, to, to take a form of identification with you for, for lots of things. So we think it's perfectly reasonable uh, and indeed justified to ask for that with something so important as voting. And on top of that, it's also something that's been going on inside the UK for uh, decades, because it's been in operation in Northern Ireland already without a hitch. And we think that therefore, it's, uh, it's exactly right to be able to introduce to the rest the UK uh, and we're making sure that all of the planning is done to indeed that it does go without a hitch.
0: It does feel odd sometimes obviously voting every election I'm eligible for but I have always thought (laughs) when I go down there it's mad that you don't even have to have or it feels mad that you don't even have to have a polling card you can just say your name and address and then you're just scrubbed off with a pencil you just think well someone could just know my name and address beat me to it and vote I mean then another part of me thinks well how many people would actually do that. I mean, do we have numbers for how often voter fraud in that way happens?
1: well let's take this by parts because you've made a whole load of really good points all in, uh, all in one go like a, a very skilled journalist um so first of all um you're absolutely right it is unfortunately very easy to commit that particular type of fraud it's, so it's called personation that's the name of it um because indeed somebody would only need to to know your name and address and, and as you exactly as you say get there before you uh, in fact there's um reports of this having happened at the uh, local elections just passed earlier this year uh, where precisely that happens now that leads on to a Really important point, which is that you wouldn't know if it had happened in every case. Now that's quite chilling, actually, when you step back and think about that. How many times might it happen, and you, you simply wouldn't know unless you were uh, going to turn up later and find out. And then, if you did, how could you identify who had done it and, and what? So, whilst the uh, actual conviction rates for this are indeed low, and I'm not going to quibble over that, they are they are low. They're in they're in single digits. What lies behind it? could be very much larger. And I think it's a perfectly proportionate way of addressing that unknown uh, by asking people to bring identification. And as you say, it's something that actually occurs to lots of people, well, why don't we do this already? The other thing I would add is that the whole idea of giving your name and address already at the polling station actually is an identification test. So the sort of point of philosophy, if you like, is already passed. The point of principle is already passed here. We have that test in law. But it's the Victorian version of it. It's the old version that said, well, if you know everyone in your village, what's to worry about? Well, you know, we don't quite live like that anymore. So we need to update electoral law to be fit for the age. And of course, that's actually what's going on across the whole of the elections bill. You know, the whole uh, very broad bill, actually, So it's much bigger than just this measure, is all designed to keep our elections, you know, secure and fair and transparent and modern as people would expect them to be.
0: You know what I hadn't thought of? It's kind of not quite an unknown unknown, but um, if you've got low turnout, I mean, particularly in like council elections where some parts of the country they usually have around 20% turnout. You've basically got 80% of an electoral register you could (laughs) take a a chance on and turn up and pretend to be someone else. I mean, you know, how the likelihood... Do you have any idea then? I mean, I know it's kind of an unknown unknown. Uh, and you set the prosecutions aside, but is there any sort of government level estimate on how often you reckon this happens?
1: Well, the 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 conviction figures, uh, conviction figures are, are held by the Electoral Commission and those are published for all to see. And that, that's a regular, you know, regular data feed that's that's existed for a, a long while. Um, we don't and couldn't hold further figures beyond that for the reasons that I've, I've explained you know it's a crime of deception obviously um, you know people don't want you to find it out if they are committing that crime and, and I just want to be really clear as well that this is a crime you know it is a crime to steal someone's vote fundamentally what you're doing in a system where we operate on one person one vote is you've got one person having many votes and that is just fundamentally wrong and uh, needs to be stopped. So we've got, as I say, a you know, a very reasonable, straightforward, proportionate way of stopping that at source. If you have to show the identification, actually that crime of deception can be stopped pretty much at source. Uh, and indeed, that's what's happened in, in Northern Ireland. That's what the record shows. So, so that's what we're seeking to do.
0: And it does feel odd that, you know, we talk about making our elections secure online. We want all these extra security checks, then in person. It's pretty easy. I mean, it sounds like we don't really know how many people do it, but it's sort of odd that the public on one hand wants it to be, you know, impenetrable because we're worried about Russia, Iran or whoever else, bad actors online, hacking our democracy. But actually, the old fashioned way is the easiest way to to do it. It's just turn up with the system we have, pretend to be someone else and vote.
1: Well, I mean, again, there's a there's a good couple of things to be said about this, aren't there? So, I think on the one hand, actually, we we do have some um, uh, traditional elements of our system that are still serving us extremely well. So, fundamentally, the way that we vote with paper and pencil is, you know, uh, likely to be an asset to us because, you know, that is uh, that that is you know inherently less hackable, obviously, than 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 an electronic system uh, would be. And in this day and age, you're absolutely right. People do have that concern about, uh, you know, what might be termed uh, foreign interference. And and again, we've got measures in 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 the bill more broadly that are about that. You know, are about maintaining that that actually, you know, democracy is for uh, those who have a correct and legitimate stake in in British society, and and that's exactly as it should be. So we've got ways to to deal with that (coughs) more broadly in this bill, as well as actually in the um, hostile state activity bill that the uh, or consultation that the. The Home Office have started, and then also to an extent in the online harms work as well from um, uh, DCMS you know all these things come together because people do rightly want to have confidence that you know our democracy is for is for us if you like is for, is for, is for, for British citizens quite rightly uh, and uh, and that,
0: that um, you know and that that's really important just on Northern Ireland then <clears throat> because I didn't know that what, what what's done differently in Northern Ireland to, to England, Wales, and Scotland?
1: Well, in this case, um, essentially the the bringing of uh, photographic ID to, to the polling station um so that was introduced in the so identification uh, at all was introduced in the 1980s and then in the 2000s that was updated to be specifically photo id now interestingly i mean i'm just going to get party political for a second here um you know there is a whole uh, line of argument coming from the labor party which uh, i can only call hypocrisy and unfortunately in the house of commons itself i'm not allowed to call it that they uh, uh, you know the, the rules say you can't call people hypocrites in the house of commons but in this case it, that is exactly
0: what it well, you can is can on this podcast
1: there we go. I've taken my opportunity um, because, uh, for two reasons. Firstly, uh, firstly, the Labour government in two thousand in, in the two thousands introduced photo ID in Northern Ireland. They did it, and they were very clear at the time that they thought it was the right thing to do. And um, uh, you know, and, and as I say, the, the record has borne them out that, that it, it's been able to work uh, very sensibly and easily for people. Um, but the second point I'm really sorry to have to say of hypocrisy, and this one just stinks, is that the uh, Labour Party itself uses ID at its uh, at, at selection meetings. It's in the rules of the NEC that Labour parties and constituencies do this. And you just think, well, is this one rule for them and one rule for another?
0: Uh, what those Labour hypocrites might say, Chloe, is that Northern Ireland... Uh, has a different context to perhaps Scotland, England and Wales um, and, and certainly did at the time and that was perhaps why Northern Ireland was the, the only part of the UK to have those things. And they might also say, well, uh, your Labour membership card that we just post out is ID and that's different. Isn't it? I, I guess people's concerns is it tends to be um, the more disenfranchised members of society who don't have a passport or a driving licence or anything like that. So you're more likely to be taking people uh sort of less privileged off the electoral register i mean is that a legitimate concern
1: I, I recognize that point and i'm glad to say that no it's not a legitimate concern at all because we're addressing it absolutely squarely there's going to be a free uh, local voter card supplied by your local council free to apply for free to get designed especially to be used in this circumstance so that nobody is shut out I mean it's as simple as that you know we are making sure that nobody who is eligible to vote to, to vote is is shut out and that's because I share exactly the same you know principle as you would do and as any listening to this would do which is that uh people eligible eligible to vote uh must be able to do so and should be encouraged to and i i take this opportunity to encourage anybody who who's listening to get registered to vote to use your vote you know i'm a democrat you're a democrat we want to see people participating and to do that to help do that what we're doing with this measure is making sure that people can have confidence that their vote, their vote is theirs alone
0: i mean it's i already have a passport and a driving license but i actually would like a voter card so is that only for people who don't have existing ID or can anyone if, if you've gone on the electoral register, does everyone just immediately get one?
1: Tell me, Matt. Why would you like a voter card if you already have voter um, ID?
0: Because I'm a sad loser, and I keep all the polling cards <laughs> from the general elections that I've voted in.
1: Uh, how just... many have you got? How many? How how thick is that stack by now?
0: Well, thanks be to the Conservatives, there've been quite a few in the last few years. So <laughs>
1: that that tell, tell, me I, I, tell me about it. Tell me about it. I reached a point recently where I realised I'd fought ten, I'd uh, fought, fought five elections in ten years. So,
0: oh, tell me about man. it. <laughs> But I do, you know, I like to keep stuff like that. But obviously, I guess it, it's not for people like me who already have ID.
1: Well, I mean, I'd, we we would obviously, you know, for the sake of sort of you know sensible use of public resources, encourage it to be to be used by those who need it. Um, uh, and but 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 we're quite open about the fact that it you know it will be freely available. Uh, and and as I say, you know, it's a matter of encouraging uh, anybody who may who may need to use it to do so. So you know, so I'll I'll, I'll only answer that in a positive way. I think.
0: Is there a part of you that thinks, I mean, you talked about the previous Labour government, ID cards were so unpopular at the time within the Labour Party, let alone other sections of society, although I think the public <clears> was slightly more on side than perhaps the Labour membership were. Do you often think, when you're talking about stuff like this, actually, if the Blair government would have just pushed ID cards through, that would have solved a lot of these problems?
1: Well, perhaps uh, perhaps Tony Blair might have, might have thought that way. Um, and look, I mean, I recognise that there is also an argument from the, from the right here in this particular debate and i'm expecting david davis to to make it <clears throat> in the house of Commons. he's already been been quite clear excuse me while i just take a gulp of water that's nothing to do with david's views I'm just <laughs>
0: yeah it's a warm um, day
1: you know, david makes the argument that you know this is he, he sees this as a you know as, a, as a, a successor to to a national id card kind of scheme and I mean, I can just answer that that pretty head on, really. You know, it, it's not. The, for, for the sake of those those concerns is why we've kept this at a local level, obviously. So it's a local voter card. If, it's, if, if people need to use it, it's local. Um, and, and by the way, of course, that's how our elections are run, you know, at their very uh, basis. You know, we hold those registers locally because that's a way of ensuring they are independent, they're disaggregated. I mean, there's even an argument uh, again, going back to national security considerations, that they are, you know, uh, better, you know, be- better held that way. But from, for this point, you know, w- what I think I'll be saying to to David when we get into the debates is that, uh, you know, as I say, it's, it's reasonable, it's proportionate, um, it is not, a, it's simply not a national ID card scheme. It won't be joined up in that kind of way. Um, and on top of that, it's the argument that I, I I just put with you, Matt, that actually the test already exists. You know, the test is already in the law. It's perfectly sensible to be able to identify yourself as you go into a polling station. Test's already there, but arguably it's done badly because it's an extremely outdated, archaic test and we ought to do it right.
0: And this would be a photo ID. This wouldn't just be like a, a permanent polling card. This would have your picture of your face on it.
1: Uh, Yeah, photographic ID, you, usually of the face, Matt, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you- <laughs> <laughs> some people might other options be- are
1: available I suppose but I mean I'm thinking really of the face yeah.
0: <laughs> well I was just thinking obviously a polling card is kind of like a temporary form of ID, isn't it for an election
1: well, that's right. So, yeah, we, sh- you sh- we shouldn't mix those things up. So, so I mean, actually, we, you know, we've piloted, uh, by the way, several different ways of, of having uh, ID in the polling station. Photographic is, is just one of those ways. Uh, we, we did actually pilot the use of, of the poll card. You know, so as you say, that little, you know, A5 piece of card that, that you get every election. So if you were able to come in the, in the council areas where we piloted that, if you could bring your poll card, you, you know, you would, that, that, would, uh, that would fulfill the requirement. Um, but but when we stood back and evaluated all the different types of things we piloted, I think it became pretty clear pretty quickly that photo <clears throat> identification was likely to be the, the most secure and, and the one that would give people the most confidence. You know, we've, we've got a clear record of that from the you know, from what, what people said in the pilots. You could imagine, I mean, you know, if you were, for example, if you were living in a, in a block of flats or a place where your letterbox was accessible, to others if they were determined about it, you know, your, your poll card could potentially fall into the wrong hands. So it's quite easy to see how that one could be uh, perhaps
0: uh, you know, misused. How do you convince people? Because people who won't have existing photo ID, like a passport or driving licence. Um, and I guess we've seen, you know, with the vaccine and throughout uh, the pandemic, that certain communities perhaps are a bit more wary of the authorities and um, less likely to engage with the state in any form, whether it's local authority or even the health service. I mean, you're going to probably have to do in some areas quite a lot of convincing. I, I mean, do you, do you feel prepared for some of the resistance you're going to find?
1: Well, first of all, let me put a number on that. So we've recently uh, added to all of the piloting and all of the evaluation with uh, additional research, with further research, and this is all part of just doing this properly. You know, as I say, this is my level of commitment to this. You know, this has got to be implemented properly for all of these very good reasons that you're you're drawing out. Um, What we found was that ninety eight percent. Of the population already have the kind of idea we'll be talking about, so which is not limited only to passports and driving licences, but would include, you know, for example, concessionary travel cards and 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 plenty more. Um, and ninety eight percent, obviously, is, is a is a very high number, you know. So I think we're already on, a, as I say, a very reasonable and 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 sort of well founded uh, approach. Um, but to make sure that, that there's really wide awareness of, uh, of the options available for anybody who's not in that, that category, we're going to be doing a number of things. Um, I'm already working with uh, civil society organisations to try to get through to groups that, that may be perceived to be less likely to have, have forms of... Uh, ID uh, and my door is absolutely open you know if there is if there is anybody uh, any any group that, that thinks that perhaps they're their members or people whose interest there they're, in, they're, they're uh, committed to you know may need to have a conversation please do that I want to hear from you and I want to work with you to get this right so we've got that well underway and that's that's been the case since the first piloting. Um, the second thing then is a very wide um, public comms campaign, as, as you'd rightly expect. So the Electoral Commission will take this part up closer to the time to make sure that there is really wide uh, a, and public awareness of what you need to do. So that there's plenty of time for anybody to go to their local council, apply for this card if they need it, get the card, and then uh, and then use it. So I do expect all of that to be uh, to be the right kind of thing that will uh, that will help um, anybody in the in the the tiny proportion of the British public that don't have identification to be able to exercise quite rightly their right to vote.
0: There are a load of other things that the bill seeks to do. One of them is a new electoral sanction to be introduced to protect campaigners and those standing for or holding elected office from inexcusable, intimidatory or abusive behaviour, both in person or online. We obviously think firstly about Joe Cox, and then more recently, her sister Kim, Kim Ledbeater, who also had a, a very awful experience in the street that was caught on video obviously sadly that experience isn't unique uh, to Batley and Spen. it's something that a lot of political campaigners a lot of female candidates will recognize um, so will this be a new offense will this be like um, a distinct offense like you know giving verbal abuse to police officers So there's a
1: couple of, there's a couple of things here this, this will be um, this will be an, an extra <clears throat> um, sanction built on top of existing offenses. So what that means is the offences are already defined in law uh, and, you know, you can look across the whole range of the law and and think what those might be. Um, And when one of those, when or if one of those comes to court, the court will be able to apply an additional sanction in terms of punishment. So what we're saying is um, we're not we're not um, we're not creating some special new offence that is uh, uh, particular to uh, elections. But if you do, if you commit one of the uh, existing forms of criminality uh, at an election time during, uh, you know, the the election periods that that are, uh, you know, meant to be, uh, you know, meant to be dedicated towards having uh, a peaceful right to choose, you know, voters don't expect violence at our elections. They expect a peaceful right to choose. Um, if you commit such an offence at that time then you've crossed a further line and uh, the judge will be able to apply this penalty and I mean I would I would say myself you know I mean I've I've had um, stupid things happen in the in the street I mean I think they're pretty contemptible Um, uh, I, I don't say that to try to brush it off that you know, it's my, my genuine opinion of, of that kind of stuff, and I and and, um, you're, you're right to draw out that this can uh, be seen as as something that occurs more that happens more to uh, more to women, uh, indeed more to uh, people from, from various types of minorities. That that's a matter of you know well researched record. So I think there's something here that is is very important, and it goes beyond only uh, MPs and candidates too. This is really important for everybody in our democracy. As I say, voters expect far more. Voters expect to be able to go about their business in, uh, in, in peace. That, that's what I want to bring about, as you know, whenever I do any constitutional work, it's about what, what people need to be able to live their lives. It's the, the platform on which people build, build their choices. Um, so, this is uh, about saying that for the sake of everybody at election time, Voters, all the way through to those whose names are actually on the ballot paper. Um, we say election times are special, and so this extra sanction applies.
0: It's not just abuse people receive in the street, is it? Members of Parliament get all sorts of stuff. A couple of years ago, a man sent a package of white powder to your office, which triggered an anthrax scare, and that must have been absolutely
1: petrifying. Yes, it was. And, and it was, I tell you who got the worst of that, it was my member of staff who opens the, opened the envelope. You know, she had to sit. Um, uh, effectively under you know sort of guard in the office for uh, you know a number of hours, uh, whilst the police around her worked out what on earth had happened and, and isolated the building. I mean you can imagine the disruption caused and the specific anguish caused to that one member of staff who is a you know a fantastic member of my team has been working for me for years and I love her to pieces. Um, but for, you know, for somebody to be put through that for the sake of, as I say, a, you know, contemptible act by some idiot far away is, um, is, is you know, it's just so sad. I say far away because actually, we, you know, we eventually came to light who the person was and, you know, he lives on the other side of the country. So what quite what he thought he was doing in the democratic po- politics of Norwich. You know, I mean, I thought he could uh, he could take a hike, frankly. Um, but of course, it does also happen in 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 person and far more, you know, far more sort of, you know, in, in your face. Um, unfortunately, I could add other examples of the kind of thing that I've seen in 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 my constituency as well. Um, but all of that is just not the kind of stuff people should have to put up with in politics, neither voters nor those who want to do public service. You know, we can all do better than this. Uh, and this, uh, this element of the elections bill is a contribution to that. And have
0: you noticed, I mean, we've talked about how many elections you've already fought since coming into the House of Commons in 2009, but have you noticed even in that 11 years in which a lot of stuff has happened, 12 years, um Crikey, do you feel like the temperature's been turned up do you Have you noticed a, a, an uptick a, an increase in the abuse that you see and experience yourself?
1: Well, it's certainly been a a pretty um intense period of twelve years. You're absolutely right about that, and you know things happening that that are hardly normal in politics and and by that, I would particularly think about. The brexit referendum having been you know an unusual turn of turn of, of politics and uh then followed by a pandemic you know hot on the heels i mean you 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 really you know you're picking you know picking pretty pretty uh you know big events there in inside that that period um uh i think i think that that has given you know a greater intensity to to politics uh understandably absolutely understandably people's views you know go very high on on both those topics quite quite rightly and you see, for me, the thing is actually, I always welcome people's engagement in politics. I mean, I think the more engagement, the better. Um, you know, we who want to do public service and are, and are lucky enough to, to be elected to do it have to be able to deal with what comes and have to be able to serve our constituents however that comes and, and serve the country if we're you know, privileged enough to be on the national stage. Um, and, and that means, um, that means, being able to hear people however they want to make themselves heard so the other obvious thing that's happened inside that same period of years is you know it's just a growth in social media growth in different methods you know <clears throat> I chatted to my I chatted to my my you know mentor the other day who's uh, Gillian Shepherd she got me into politics first of all in in rural Norfolk that was my that was my starting point and um, you know I mean you think about what her literal physical constituency mailbag would have been like 30 years ago and, and a bit more compared to you know mine and I mean it's just worlds apart so so politics has changed um yes it's got more intense some of that is difficult but I wouldn't I couldn't possibly describe that as for the worse I mean I think all engagement is is good engagement generally so long as it's polite and respectful and non-violent you know let's have it or as Delia Smith would say in Norwich let's be having you.
0: (laughs) Indeed I want to ask you about Gillian Shepard but I just let's finish off talking about the elections bill just while we're on it so that I don't forget because there are some really important and interesting things in it and one of them is a new digital imprints regime which will require political campaigners to explicitly declare when they are promoting campaign content online and on whose behalf. Now sort of immediately see the sense of that is there a risk though that then people who are just commenting on twitter are then effectively counted as i mean you think of someone like owen jones would he then be whacked with a fine for saying oh i endorse this candidate or vote labor
1: we've taken a lot of care over over this one for for exactly uh this point You're, you're you're absolutely spot on again matt um uh because you know naturally you don't want to uh, Penalise or, or, you know, effectively criminalise um, people's personal opinions. Quite, quite right, there has to be that space, absolutely. And this is one of the challenges that that would come if you were endeavouring to do any kind of regulation in the, you know, in the digital age. So um, we think we've arrived at the right, uh, the right solution on this, which is to to make sure that we're defining uh, the material in question as uh, material that is uh, political uh, and material that is election uh, oriented. Now, it doesn't have to be only at election time. We're um, saying that this could apply year-round, so that's why I say it's political uh, and uh, electoral. Um, the electoral test uh, actually is, is one that's already very clear in, in the law. It's something that is, uh, you know, designed to promote or procure a particular electoral outcome. So in the example you just gave, if the person is saying, you know, vote this party or don't vote that party, then, then that is, uh, you know, that is likely to be electoral. Um but if they were simply saying, oh, do you know, I believe in X or I don't particularly like Y or Z, you know, as a subject matter, as opposed to as a, you know, candidate or a party, then, then you know, then that, that might be a different, different question. All of this is obviously, um, you know, going to be something that, that campaigners and, and people who are producing the material do have to get used to so again we're going to make sure there is very clear uh, guidance and communications about what this consists of because the last thing we want is for for this to be uh, you know confusing and difficult to to make work that's why we've consulted on it um, you know quite extensively actually to get the technicals of this right I think people will welcome that it's happening because what it means is greater transparency just to be clear for any listener who um, might not be aware of what a digital imprint actually is, um, anyone who isn't steeped in the history of election leaflets, for example, uh, election leaflets, if you pick, you know, traditional paper leaflets, if you pick one up, there's a tiny line of print at the bottom that says this leaflet was printed and promoted by uh, blah on behalf of blah, you know, to, to address of party blah at, you know, blah. And that's what we're trying to transfer into the digital space why would we do that? It's because you need to be able to see who is chatting to you online, be able to see who it is that is trying to uh, influence your vote. We think that is a, a perfectly reasonable and central tenet of, um, of our democratic politics and as I say it already it's been happening in the paper leaflet world for, for, for decades so, so this is the update into the online world. But to achieve that, as I say, um, needs to be able to be clear uh, and limited to uh, political and electoral materials so that it doesn't bring in um, people who are merely expressing their own personal view on something.
0: Yeah, and I guess now on Twitter you have, you know, if you see a government minister tweet, Twitter adds a kind of UK government account kind of line to it, doesn't it, so you know what you're seeing. So I guess in a way, it's just a form of that at election time.
1: I, I think you could see it that way. I mean, there's there's obviously you know a role here that, that the current social media platforms can can play as well, and I, and I you know I think that's um, you know broadly a helpful thing if if they can add to transparency too. Um, and and for example, you know the way that uh, the way that some platforms run effectively libraries of of you know material um, is a is a good thing. It means that voters can search, you know, citizens can search through that and and you know you might almost then argue well the government doesn't need to do it because it's already been provided in this in the same space so 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 that's part of the same debate really um but i think the the other key thing here is that actually you can't just limit this to the platforms that you can currently conceive of if we're writing law it has to be good law for the future so you know you, you tell me what the platforms of 10 years time are going to be 20 years time 40 years time i want this law to be a good one that stands the test of time so we've worked hard to try to make sure this is uh, as, as much future-proofed as possible, um, uh, whilst conscious that it's it's coming into an environment where there's uh, already quite, you know, quite a demanding pressure being laid on, on social media companies to do their bit as well.
0: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, any political activist listening to this who has ever had to print a leaflet on a risograph or anything... I mean, the amount I remember... Oh, dear me. The imprint is the thing. You always forget and always get wrong. And you can't put it out without that being correct. And there'll be people listening to this around the world with their head in their hands, remembering long nights in campaign offices, having to... Took thousands of leaflets in the recycling. So in a way, I guess... Not that it, it... You presume that the digital one... Not that mistakes won't be made, but... At least you won't have printed it off twenty thousand times by the time you realise you have to rectify it. So that will be a positive. Yeah, I,
1: I remember those. Uh, I remember those, those those moments as well. Uh, the, the sound of a The sound of a whirring risograph is a, a kind of you know in the audio archive, isn't it, of politics? <laughs> um, but but the other thing I think it's worth worth saying here. I mean, you know, if you if you really do have listeners around the world, which I'm I, fantastic if you do. Delighted oh, to hear absolutely. That, uh, Great stuff um well actually do you know here is one where the UK is going to be ahead um, this is genuinely something that not very many countries have managed to do so far uh, there are a few examples uh, and I, I you know I've been very keen to look at those in, in detail and learn from them. Um, so so we're likely to be one of the first countries to be able to have
0: a really comprehensive regime which I think is um, is to be welcomed. There's some of the really positive things in the bill that well, I might actually surprise people. So one of them is to increase participation. The bill will deliver the long-standing commitment to remove the arbitrary 15-year limit on overseas electors voting in UK parliamentary general elections. So this feels, you know, it broadening the franchise is usually seen as a positive thing. Uh, governments who expand the franchise aren't always rewarded for it. People who might remember the 1832 Reform Act remember that uh, the government increased the franchises and promptly voted out. But, you know, in a, in a Brexit, you know, you've got Boris Johnson leading a you know, pro-Brexit government, um, making it easier for new citizens to vote. Um, people might be surprised that Boris Johnson's government's doing this.
1: Well, <clears throat> I don't think there's any call for surprise because actually it's been a manifesto commitment for some time. So, so, so that that that's the, the sort of first first point to make there. And indeed, interestingly, it's also a manifesto commitment of um, people like the Liberal Democrats, uh, who um, you might not always think that if you hear some of the arguments they may end up putting in the course of this debate. Just uh, one to tuck away. Um, I think the I think the point here actually is is a, again a very a very reasonable one, which is that. British citizens, wherever they are around the world, retain ties back to back to this country, and our national politics quite rightly influences them, impacts them, involves them. You know, if it's tax rates, if it's pension quantities, if it's uh, foreign policy, all those things affect a British citizen citizen wherever they are. And the other thing about the current setup is that there is this arbitrary cut off point at fifteen years. So just to put that in context, if you were if you were um, a British British citizen living abroad, you'd currently already be able to vote for 15 years uh, after you had left uh, these shores. Um, and then suddenly you wouldn't, you know, the next day you wouldn't. It's as sudden as that. I mean, we we don't generally tend to think that's a good thing to do in, in public policy, you know, to have sort of abrupt cutoffs, uh, do we? And and so this, this is one of those. And I think a lot of people experience that as really unjust, actually, one day to the next. Have they suddenly stopped being so British? No, of course they haven't. So we, we're taking out that um, that cut off point and that's where the uh, as you say extension of the franchise comes from that's where that's where greater numbers come from but we think they're they're obviously they're already you know in a category that we w- already welcome in in british politics and 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 rightly so
0: a cynic might say oh this is boris johnson figuring out that uh... You're going to get a load of expats who, who go abroad, and they're always the kind of Brits abroad, down the Rose and Crown, down at the Costa, and he's going to, you're going to keep those people in the franchise. And what's more, they might say, that means that in any future Scottish independence referendum, Scottish people who've moved to England and therefore might be more pro-union can then tip the balance in any future plebiscite.
1: Well, let's do. Let's take those two things in halves because you've opened up a massive one with the with the second part of that. But but stick, sticking with um, overseas electors uh, for our um, UK general elections, um, actually. Uh, no, this is this is not this is not something, uh, you know, solely for the Conservative Party. It just it just simply isn't. I've already made the point about the Lib Dems manifesto. Uh, and let me add one from Labour, which is that one of the most veteran campaigners on this is Mr. Harry Schindler, uh, quite a fabulous uh, old gent who is going to be 100. In fact, I think it was four days ago, if I remember his birthday rightly. Uh, I sent him a copy of the bill with uh, with my love um, because birthday card. He is the oldest serving member of the Labour Party and has been active on this for years as a uh, uh, as in fact a, a previous World War II uh, uh, fighter who is living in Italy. So, you know, this this really is one for everybody. And I think we, we could all be proud of that um do you, shall we really go on at this point in the conversation to uh, to to the idea of scottish independence or do you want to exhaust the elections uh,
0: well i guess to deal with that maybe let's just deal with that individual point about people might smell a rat and go hang on they're worried about losing scotland and the scots who live south of the border are naturally going to be more predisposed to scotland remaining in the union and this is a this is keeping scotland in the union through the back door
1: so there's a there's a boring technical point first, and then there's a then there's the kind of high politics point. The, the boring technical point is that this this measure is totally separate to that and just just wouldn't apply in that way. Um, it, it, as you might know, elections policy actually itself is devolved. So what I'm legislating for in this bill is matters that are reserved. In other words, um, UK general elections, uh, and that's that's where overseas voters are eligible to to vote. Incidentally not in um, English local elections. Um, so in terms of Scottish devolved elections, this matter wouldn't cover that. Um, now coming on then to, you know, coming on then to the, the kind of broader, you know, broader political point about about, you know, is is now the right time for a referendum uh, on Scottish independence and, and on what basis would it be run? I mean, we just think that now isn't the right time. You know, we we we, we very firmly believe that we've got uh, a big enough job on our hands uh, recovering from the pandemic and that that uh, actually is best done at a uh, UK-wide level. And I think that's demonstrably true when you look at the vaccination rollout, you look at furlough, you look at all these things that have only been possible because of the size and scale of the UK. So um, I don't think we're really... Um, you know, looking at the uh, details of, of precisely who would vote in any, any such referendum, because we just think now is not the right time to to have such a thing.
0: As Minister for the Constitution, it must be such a fascinating role because I mean, there basically, isn't one, or there is, but it's not codified, and different parts of the UK have different rules and different things and different parts governing them. Just on the Scotland issue, which is for most people when they think of uk constitutional politics is the first thing that springs to mind obviously boris johnson in the past had said that devolution had been a disaster he may have been joking but nevertheless is the what is the kind of government view of devolution is it that it supports it and it's a good idea is it that it should go further is it that this is enough is it that in some ways it should be rolled back
1: well um, first of all i suppose in passing i should say a thing about the idea of us having a, 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 a as you say no constitution which is, is of course not quite right it says it's an, an a, a uncodified one um and in fact i'm very proud to have been the minister for it over a period of 10 years under three different prime ministers i think i'm a, rather in the uh, sort of long long serving uh, subject matter expert category with with some <laughs> of that um but, but actually i mean i'm i'm absolutely passionate about about what it means to to be able to be responsible for constitutional affairs because, as I said earlier on, it it is the you know it's the platform that everything else rests upon. If you don't have a stable constitution, you don't have a stable economy. You don't have stable opportunity for people, you know. And, and arguably, we saw um, the risk of that rear its head, um, uh, you know, in 2019. Um, if you don't mind me just making one other reference to uncodified constitution, um, actually, in another another part of my work, I'm seeing the uh, repeal of the Fixed Term Parliament Act. Uh, through that's the called the dissolution and calling of parliament's bill lucky me I've got two bills at once uh, and that is uh, even only as I return to the house of commons after breast cancer Um, and um, and that is you know that is one where we'll be returning to to older constitutional arrangements because newer ones didn't work Uh, so so you know I think that is I think that's a point in favor of the uh, the uncodified uh, arrangements that have stood the test of stood the test of time now devolution right let's do that um, I mean, I think there's I, I think there's been enormous strengths actually through devolution. So, you've already heard me say, nonetheless, that we we have um, huge success to to be uh, I think confident in at a, at a you know at a UK level. What is the United Kingdom all about? You know, it's about being the most successful and you know the most the most successful political and economic union you know the world's ever seen. But it's also actually now about being able to have decision making taken in a, in a in a way that is closer to where people uh, are and that that's right and proper so so you know that we that obviously covers the devolution settlements that we've got in in northern ireland scotland um and wales but also let's have a nod to uh, to england here which is i think you know what you what you saw coming out in the prime minister's leveling up speech last week um where you know he's rightly saying local leadership makes a huge difference and um the chance for example to see that at county level could well be transformational.
0: Just on things being repealed, English votes for English laws, which was David Cameron's immediate reaction, really, to, to the uh, Scottish independence referendum in 2014, that's now gone. I mean, is that, is that a backward step or a forward step?
1: Well, <clears throat> that is a very fine example of... Um, the repeal of that is a very fine example of um, uh, why... Uh, uh, of, of how we need to be uh, working for the whole of the United Kingdom. So the UK Parliament is the Parliament for the whole of that United Kingdom, the whole of the country. And to have effectively um, MPs netted off within that um, uh, wasn't, wasn't, I think, in the right spirit of of, the kind of unionism that wants to see... A voice being heard from every corner of the country, and for that to be able to, you know, successfully hold hold the government of the day uh, to account, and and indeed, you know, show the leadership that that constituents need. So, so that's why we haven't um, renewed the, those standing orders, um, and uh, and and I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot to be said for that approach. For example, um, Andrew Bowie, one of the Scottish MPs, was was very clearly articulating that, you know, the the, the weaknesses of the of those standing orders in terms of of you know, sort of getting things done sensibly in, in the in the legislative process, you know, whilst actually there was this opportunity there all along to re-articulate how the United Kingdom Parliament is there for the whole country.
0: Isn't there a danger with this, that at the moment, a sense of organised English nationalism is basically restricted to elements of the football hooliganism community and a few kind of crackpots, um, but... The danger is with stuff like this is that you end up kind of placating, try to keep Scotland in the Union at all costs, and doing things that are fundamentally undemocratic, that Scottish MPs can vote on things that are devolved, and the SNP can elect X amount of people to Parliament to to change the laws in England when they have... (laughs) those laws that devolved in Scotland. So things like Sunday trading or Fox hunting or whatever it is, whatever future thing might be, you then go, well, actually, you've got this imbalance and we're just gambling on the fact that England isn't as far down the road in terms of its independence debate as Scotland is. But that day might come.
1: I'm not sure that's really the, the right debate to be having. I mean, I think, I think as I say, we, we do need to think really about what the <clears throat> United Kingdom Parliament is for. Um, you know, and it is the place where... Where people need to come together from from all four corners of the uh, you know of, of, of the of the country to be able to take their view on uh, on on national matters, um, you know. Yes, it is also the case that actually uh, matters for England are uh, dealt with through through you know through through the Parliament as well. But there are ways for that to be done, and ways for that to be done successfully. Ways for that to be properly held to account. That I think um, I think we'll be able to to do this job.
0: And why don't you think there is a sense of English nationalism in the in the, in the UK politics in the same way that there is in Scotland? I mean, I, I guess that for a lot of people, Englishness and Britishness are kind of the same thing. And England makes up so much more of the population of Britain that conflating it with Britishness kind of is probably easier for people. Maybe they don't think about it in the same way. Um, obviously, England has a different relationship with Westminster, perhaps to the one that Scotland has. But... Devolution in England hasn't been done at a national level, it's been done at regional and, and city level. Why do you think that is?
1: I mean, speaking from, speaking from quite personal experience, I think, I think devolution at, at the more <clears throat> regional and local level in England um, has really worked. So if I take this theme again of, of local leadership that the Prime Minister was setting out last week, and this really resonates with me you know that speech by the way I, I loved i mean it reminded me why i'm a conservative it reminded me why i went into politics that, that is, those are the kind of issues i want to be you know i want to be able to to make a contribution to and um you know and 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 that speaks you know for me to not only my motivation but also actually track record in for example uh, norwich and norfolk you know my, my constituency and where i come from because You know, I've I've, um, devised and founded a scheme in Norwich to uh, halve youth unemployment in our city and working with, you know, the right partners locally who I brought together. uh, We said, okay, here's a city. We have a fantastic, you know, tightly focused economy, tightly focused community. We can really do this with a sense of community pride. And we went ahead and did it. We did it, in fact, in less time than we challenged ourselves to do it. And we made a difference to. know hundreds and hundreds of lives that is local leadership in action and I think that really works I think you can see examples of that up and down the country throughout England and in and no doubt also actually in Scotland Wales and Northern Ireland as well and I really hope so um but I I think I think that kind of track record is what the Prime Minister you know will have been thinking of in his speech and, and where we can do so much more you know he's absolutely correct to think about um the way that uh, you know, for too many people, geography turns out to be destiny. I mean, I certainly felt that way when I was growing up in in rural Norfolk. You know, where. I'm sorry to say there weren't exactly opportunities to turn a penny on the ground in in uh, southwest Norfolk. You know, my first job was a first job was a, you know, was 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 um, uh, picking lettuces in the fields and followed by chopping them in the factories, followed by, um, you know, a little bit of a step up in the world by being able to wash the, dish, wash the dishes at a local national trust property. You know, there weren't in a rural place many more opportunities immediately obvious than that. You know, so so I I um Began to develop my my political thinking and, and views based on well where where do you find opportunity how do you get to it how do you help it be there for everybody, um and that's what I can now see um coming through nationally, which I'm I'm delighted to see.
0: Obviously, one of the places you could have worked obviously was North Norfolk Digital or uh, Pear Tree Productions or any of um, Alan Partridge's fine enterprises that were, of course all um, rooted in fact. I mean, how do people of Norfolk feel about Partridge? Because Coogan's <laughs> from Manchester, so does it feel like a a positive or a negative to the people there?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of both, isn't it? Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you. Well, maybe one day I need to invite you to uh, to come and visit Norwich. Um, <laughs> oh, I love it! It's the, an
0: amazing place.
1: <laughs> when the last, um, when the la- when the the when he made the, the film out of Alan Partridge, actually, the, the whole joke became, um, you know, have the premiere in Anglia Square, not Leicester Square, uh, which uh, which made us all giggle a bit
0: um so growing up in Norwich as you said you worked for Gillian Shepherd. what at quite a young age obviously you became an MP at a young age so were you one of those people that got into politics in your teens well yes I was no that, that that's right and
1: and actually you know the, the kind of experiences I was just talking about you know were were all part of me thinking you know well, well what is there in you know what is there in rural Norfolk and what more could be what more could be done and and the one of the ways i i started thinking about that was was transport um so i mean the, you know the the pm is not alone in in liking a you know liking buses like trains and, and, and automobiles you know they, they actually are, they really are really meaningful in terms of being able to get to the stuff you want to get to it's as simple as that um so you know as a as a teenager i was um working to try to set up a youth forum across Norfolk that might have as its aim, you know, getting more bus routes so we could see our mates. I mean, you know basic stuff and um and from that started getting the idea that actually you can stand up and do something for for your community um, and and that was that was very important to me and and then you know from from there you know progressed on through my own um education went to study english lit at the university of york another uh, fabulous small medieval city by the way two, two very great places um, and um, you know, and then went to went to work in the private sector. I used to work for Deloitte as a management consultant, and then and then began to work my way back towards politics and think, well, perhaps I could, you know, perhaps I could do this. Uh, and actually, if you remember, way back when it was um, David Cameron who made the call as he became leader for there to be more women representing the Conservative Party, and I thought, well, you know, that could be me. Why not? Uh, so I <clears throat> put my name forward on the on the candidates list, and was I mean, absolutely delighted to be selected to be the candidate for. Norwich North, as I say, part of you know where I came from, and and you know such a privilege to be able to do that. Uh, and then and then events started taking a you know a sort of serendipitous turn, or maybe just a hair raising turn, because um, because a by election uh, came along, and you know I don't know how many by election candidates you interview on this podcast, Matt, but I mean they'll all sympathise with the fact that actually suddenly you know something changes in your you know in your your professional world if you're hoping to 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 be elected, that chance comes. Radically sooner, and then, uh, and then from there, as I say, I was, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to to be, um, uh, you know, looking at five elections in in ten years, beating Labour five times, and um, indeed that now makes me a bit of a, a veteran in the Conservative Parliamentary Party.
0: I mean, we're a similar age, growing up at a similar time. We're probably getting into politics at a similar time, so it was the end of the major era. Tony Blair is this really exciting individual who is appealing to every corner of the UK, apparently, or certainly every corner of Britain. Now, I get that you're growing up in Norfolk, which has its own distinct politics. But was there any part of you that thought, oh, actually, I quite quite like New Labour. you know, was there ever a, a, a fork in the road? Could you have ended up being a Labour MP and not a Conservative one?
1: well i mean i've got lots of friends in i've got lots of friends across across um you know across politics and and i don't you know i, I certainly don't have a you know sort of visceral hatred of people in other parties i'm not tribal like that um although may i say sometimes i, I get that back in return from the labor party in a way that is you know is is particular to them you know there, there's hell hath no fury like some members of uh, some members of the hard left um but but uh, actually i would i would say large influences on me at that time include my parents uh, in fact so my mum was a, a teacher uh and actually throughout my family there's there's teachers a really strong tradition of, of teaching and I've got a really keen interest by the way in education issues and and the you know the position now of you know what parents have gone through in the last few years um uh last last two years I and so so you know my mum's values as a teacher really you know shone through for me and um my father he uh, was also trained as a teacher, but, but in fact was a cabinet maker by profession. So um, you know, I had a wonderful childhood thanks to thanks to my very wonderful family who you know who showed me, attention to detail and tenacity and hard work and all the things that have to come if you're running your own business you know in a workshop at the bottom of the garden producing beautiful furniture um uh, and, and indeed also have to come if you stand up day after day in front of a you know school full of unruly kids um of, of which of course I was one because actually I was at the school that my mum my mum taught at which is uh, not an experience necessarily to recommend to anybody oh that must have been so awkward for you both
0: how <laughs> well, do you manage yeah. that <laughs>
1: Yeah, mainly just stay quiet, which is, um, I don't know if that's something I still do.
0: Yes, when I think of the school that I went to, there were a couple of kids who were the um, children of some of the teachers. And either they kind of got away with murder or they had to behave just so impeccably well that it was very hard for them to kind of be themselves because they were always known as Mr or Mrs so-and-so's child. I, I always thought it was quite harsh on them. But I guess if you're living in the middle of nowhere, you probably didn't have the range of choices of schools to go to.
1: Well, yeah. Again, back to the point about what does opportunity really look like? You know, in in sparse rural areas, it looks very, very different. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Um, the um, the things I really, I mean, the things I was also taking an interest in at the time. You know, I was, I was quite sporty, um, a very keen cyclist. Uh, and actually, as I, you know, as I kind of complete recovery now from, you know, from from the surgery after cancer, I'm I can't wait to get back cycling. Actually, that's my goal for next week is is to get you know get back on the bike again. Um, and uh, I also played badminton. I went to play badminton for, for West Norfolk in the in the leagues. Um, and I mean, I suppose if you want to, you know, you want to sort of silly pun about where I am on the political spectrum. I mean, I was always practising my serve to be sort of down the centre line, but occasionally deceptive. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> that's uh, maybe that'll serve to reflect, uh, reflect what you're asking about
0: politics. Yes, I think that's... Um, yes. Um, a lot of cocks involved in badminton as well. And that seems to be... Um... Parliament seems to be full of them so maybe I don't, maybe,
1: think, I need, I don't think I need to dignify that one do I <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, you mentioned it there and everyone's just so delighted that you've you've made a full recovery after chemotherapy and and surgery after um, developing breast cancer I mean it's just incredible that you got it so young it must have just been a complete shock
1: Yes, I suppose that is true. Um, you know, and you sort of look around the treatment room, and, and I think, on the whole, people are older than you as you're as you're, you know, receiving your your treatment. Um, but, but I mean, unfortunately, the truth is actually cancer, you know, can and will hit very many of us over our lifetimes. Um, and, and what I've tried to do here is is, you know, just turn this um, rather awful thing into a, an opportunity to to remind others to get checked and, and get tested. You know, if you have a um, if you have a, a lump in your breast or anything unusual that you might find in, in your body, you know, please go and speak to your doctor about it. I know that can feel pretty daunting at the moment, given everything that's been going on with the pandemic and given the sensation that there's a lot of people also wanting help and, you know, numbers on waiting lists all of that is is true, but please do not let that hold you back, because you will get the care that you need. You know, the doctor will see you, will make sure you're you're moved on to you know to the treatment if you do need it. Um, and I can't speak highly enough of those who've done that for me.
0: It's obviously a, it's the news no one wants. Obviously, thanks to the fantastic care you've had, uh, you're now completely free of it. Um, but do you think you've do you think you've dealt with it? I mean. It, I, I, everyone has a different experience you know some people just completely collapse at the time other people just effectively fight the fight and they get through it like, almost like it's a form of campaign um but it's a you know it's a terrible news to have isn't it and there must be moments that are really quite difficult emotionally I mean do you think you've processed it all
1: um, I suppose my technique was was compartmentalization, to be honest, you know, you, you put it in a box over there and you go to your appointments and you you deal with it. Um, and, and, I, and I've also been very lucky, perhaps not to have um, felt too rough through the treatment, you know, being being quite straightforward about it. I mean, you know, chemo is horrible for anybody, but but actually I I don't think I've perhaps had the worst of it that, that I know some people experience. Um maybe I'm I'm very fortunate to be, you know, have been fit and healthy uh you know up, up up to this point and I'm and I'm sure that helped. Um but I'm also the parent of two you know tiny children. I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old so you know the amount of sleep going on in our household is probably not great at the best of times. Um so adding all of that together, you know, had it has, has had its challenges. I mean my family have been great obviously and and my, you know, my friends as well. Um, and even the strangers, you know, actually the kindness of strangers really comes to the fore here because you, you know, when you are a public figure, you do sometimes get, you know, messages uh, come, well, I say sometimes, in this, in this case, I mean, messages have poured in from all sorts, um, giving me such uh, support and encouragement, which I'm incredibly uh, grateful for. Um, I also chose to carry on working throughout. I mean, uh, you know, some people, uh, you know, will be in that position. So some some won't, perhaps depends on the kind of job you do. Um, and given the ways that, uh, you know, Westminster has has turned virtual, obviously various other jobs have done that as well in the same, you know, same period with the pandemic. Um, it has been possible for me to carry on, you know, carry on doing doing the, the work that I love, um, which has, you know, kept me sane, although to be able to say that about the madhouse that is Westminster, I suppose, is, is sort of quite, quite something. But you know i'm 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 glad of that cuz cuz as i say uh, that that kept my my sort of familiar work life and you know my familiar interests and passions going whilst even these strange things were also happening
0: resilience gets talked about a lot in politics and politicians who mention it often draw on a tragedy losing a parent or a loved one a sibling people talk about dealing with their own health scares or uh, all sorts of tragedies that can befall people often out of a clear blue sky uh, perhaps it's too early to tell but has this changed your perspective on life or politics
1: i think it has i mean i think i think yes i've had to draw on on i've had to dig you know pretty deep over the last few months and draw on resilience that um, i think I, I suspect i've I've always had inside me but it, you know it's come to it's come to to come 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 to be needed in the, in the last while and as i say th- those values run quite deep for me as well you know mentioning my parents um i mean there's also a rather nice story a little step further back in the family tree actually at a certain point where in my background there were um, a family of uh immigrants from italy who came and started with a rag and bone business and finished with an antiques shop you know and <laughs> sort of quite lovely sense of you know building things up and keeping going and determination and and so on um and and I mean, I, I've, I've been immensely flattered by, you know, a lot of the very nice things people have said about me as well, you know, in, in a couple of the debates where I've not been able to be present in person, you know, people have, have said um, very, uh, very nice things about me and that, that's that's very nice of them to have done so. Um, so I suppose you, yeah, you learn a bit about yourself, you learn a bit about how others see you, but I think most important of all, you learn about what others also need. So you know as a constituency mp you are always trying to walk in other people's shoes that's what you do that's the job title the job description um but i know now what some of those shoes you know feel like um and i have great sympathy for others who are going through similar positions or, or any kind of uh any kind of challenging illness um and i hope there's things that i can contribute back in turn to to be able to help others
0: you also mentioned a uh, spell at deloitte which I don't, you know, this went round at the time, and I don't know if it's true or not, but is it true that David Cameron appointed you as a Treasury Minister because he thought because you'd been at Deloitte, that meant you were an accountant?
1: Listeners won't be able to see that I've just raised one eyebrow at Matt <laughs> because I knew that one was coming. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just, oh, I, I don't credit that. I, I think the, uh, the, the facts of the matter are that I was a, I was a management consultant, uh, and I'm happy to make clear I am not a qualified accountant. <laughs>
0: Uh, your time at the Treasury, um, obviously a fascinating time, the coalition government. Um, I mean, I, you know, really think about how much politics has changed. Just think about the sorts of things that are on telly and uh, social media and all those things. Now, this interview, I hope, has been pretty pleasant. Um, I watched back the interview with Jeremy Paxman... Um,
1: I've just but, raised uh, both eyebrows. have now raised both eyebrows.
0: But... I think he was pretty rude to you. I don't know if you felt that at the time. I mean, obviously at the time, politicians get a grilling, and still now, is you know, he's part of political life, and it seems an essential part of it, and robust questioning in public is important. But, you know, watching that back before talking to you today, actually I just thought, he just seemed like he was in a foul mood. It didn't really feel like a justified, robust interview. I mean, obviously you find yourself in the middle of it as a, a relatively new minister as a relatively young person with all your experience in life, but still not hardened in the way that, you know, war dogs who've been around for 30 years have, have, have been. But did it feel inappropriate, that interview?
1: I remember thinking at the time that, you know, he was he was asking some questions that were, you know, just to put it mildly misguided, you know, the idea that the general public wouldn't appreciate paying less money in fuel duty, you know, is, is I think probably, you know, badly, badly placed. Um, but I mean, you know, I think the whole thing was a mountain out of the mole, out of a molehill uh, at the time. Um, I am now obviously quite a different person, just to make the obvious point. You know, we're talking ten years ago. I mean, you you ask yourself, Matt, what you did in your professional work ten years ago? Was it as good as what you're doing today? No, of course it wasn't. You know, <laughs> you 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 live, you learn, you 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 know, take what's in your path, you chew it up, you spit it out. I mean, that's uh, you know, that, that's what that's what I, I that's how I now see that. Um, But I will also add, I mean, just as as we have spoken about quite a lot of personal stuff here, I mean, I would also add that actually, if you really want to think what the important thing was going on in my week that week, it was the fact that my father was just going for his operation on bowel cancer that week. You know, was I really caring what Jeremy Paxman said to me, or was I really thinking about uh, a loved one going through a, a tough operation? You know, you, you can choose. I mean, I could say something, uh, you know, pretty unbroadcastable about about what that, you know, what that felt like at the time, uh, but actually, I know where my priorities really were.
0: I mean, it was a, it was a real baptism of fire. I mean, as I say, robust interviews have to be part, I guess, of a, a of a democracy, but it's about when they're appropriate or not, and that. I don't know if people I think the danger is at the time in a way elements of the public kind of enjoy it and they go yeah you know be tough on a Tory on telly and you think well as this podcast is kind of set up to prove politicians are still human beings uh, and as you say often with um things going on at the time that viewers might not appreciate um so I don't know what the, <laughs> I guess the point is um not that this was set up as an antidote to that uh interview specifically but It just can't have been a very pleasant
1: It's great therapy, Matt. (laughs) At least there's that. At least
0: there's that. Um, Chloe, this has been an absolute treat. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. And it's been great to talk about, you know, a variety of things. Um, And obviously, the big political interview this week, or in the last few days, has been the one um, with Dominic Cummings. And I think this has probably been more constructive than that as well. All eyebrows now raised on all sides of the camera. Well, I'll,
1: I'll yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't I don't think any of those topics need to, need more added to they?
0: Chloe, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Matt. Really nice to speak to you.
0: Pleasure. All the best. Well, there you go, Chloe Smith. You can absolutely see why Chloe was an MP at the age of twenty-seven. There are some, I mean, politicians of all ages, where you go, how on earth? But you go, oh, my God, Uh, you were clearly destined to be a a politician. 27 was probably late, really. Um, But what a a brilliant conversation. And and really good to talk in detail about that piece of legislation, which I've done a few times on this show, of course, with specific reports and things. But I think it is good to get into the detail and the logic behind these things and then talk about the wider picture. And I, I loved the conversation about devolution. Um, there are some people in life that are just a bit more optimistic than the others. And Chloe Smith is one of those people just has um, a bit more optimism and a bit more energy. And you just think, well, that's, that will always serve you. Well, that will always carry you through. So um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a review. And if you want to get an Alan Partridge reference in there that I'm sure would delight, uh, not just myself, but uh, Chloe Smith as well. And then please do email the show political party at gmail.com. I have some very exciting news about this podcast in terms of its live shows, which as soon as it is fully official, I shall announce. But um, yes, I mean, I've sort of given that away, I guess. But anyway, yes, um, the full details. I'm just rambling now. I'm rambling like I'm interviewing myself. Well, I just want to say, you know, I don't want to preempt the announcement. So I will see you soon. Ta-ra.